0: Good morning, and welcome to the speaker series here at St. John's Church. My name is Rob Fisher, and I'm the rector of St. John's Lafayette Square. Um, We are going to have a very stimulating conversation this morning, I believe, as we welcome Professor
1: Christian Appy. So thank you for joining us, and with that, I will turn it over to Clark. Thank you very much, Rob. Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. We're delighted to welcome as our speaker this Sunday, Professor Christian Appy, who is a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and one of America's foremost experts on the Vietnam War. Professor Appy is the author of three important books on the war, namely, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity, Patriots, the Vietnam War Remembered from All Sides, which won the Massachusetts Book Award for nonfiction in the year of its publication, 2004, and Working Class War, American Combat Soldiers and Vietnam. The professor is uh, a graduate of Amherst College where he earned his undergraduate degree and he earned his doctorate degree in history from Harvard. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor Chris Appy.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Clark. Good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, This morning, I'd like to talk about the most important anti-war whistleblower in US history, Daniel Ellsberg. And the main reason for that is that uh, last fall at my campus, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, we got the amazing news that uh, our university archives had acquired the papers of Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who by the way is still alive uh, and living in California at 89 and still capable of talking us all uh, to exhaustion, super sh- super sharp guy. Um, and he was attracted to the UMass archives because of its uh, deserved reputation for collecting um, m- many papers relevant to social justice and political activism, uh, including of course the papers of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, after whom the library actually is named. Uh, it's an amazing uh collection uh the art the Ellsberg papers consisting of some 500 boxes of materials. Uh, The guy really is a kind of borderline hoarder which is one of the things that really attracted me to these uh these papers and almost immediately gave me the idea that maybe I should you know write a book about his life and its relevance to our understanding of American foreign policy from World War II all the way to the present. And also to form, uh, develop a year-long seminar for uh, advanced undergraduates and graduate students on Ellsberg's life, getting them a chance to look through this treasure trove of an archive. So that course actually just began a few weeks ago and is the only face-to-face course that my department is offering uh, this year. Uh, Well, who was Daniel Ellsberg? Uh, You know, he, he, though famous for a period of time uh, in the early 70s, really has fallen out of public memory to a large extent, though many of you will certainly um, remember or know that in 1971, it was Ellsberg who released to the New York Times first um, a collection of some 7,000 pages of top secret documents pertaining to decision-making in the Vietnam War, U.S. decision-making, dating back to the mid-40s through early 1968. And many of you may also know that he gave a portion of those papers, uh, thanks to the uh, movie The Post, uh, you may also know that he gave a section of these papers to The Washington Post as well as The Times. What you might not be aware of is that he also sent sections of the papers to 17 other American uh, newspapers, and they printed them, which is an act of an extraordinary, really unprecedented um, journalistic defiance of a sitting president. Uh, uh, The Nixon administration had brought four injunctions trying to stop the presses from publishing, and that was really in uh, itself a historic moment. Never before in U.S. history had the federal government uh, sought to uh, stop the presses uh, in this preemptive way by the issuing of what's called a prior restraint order. Though a few weeks later as, uh, as all these newspapers are, are beginning to publish sections of these um, classified documents about the war, the Supreme Court weighed in on the side of the First Amendment and the right of um, the press uh, to publish these papers that the White House had unsuccessfully been able to uh, persuade the court uh, endangered national security, uh, nonetheless, um, for copying and releasing these secret documents, uh, the government went after Ellsberg um, and charged him with uh, twelve felony counts, uh, a number of them under the Espionage Act going all the way back to World War one uh, th- this two uh, is another first historically. This was the first time an American had ever been tried for espionage without the government claiming that um, uh, they had given secret documents to foreign enemies. I mean, if you think about it, who was the enemy that Ellsberg was trying to give these papers to? It was the press, Congress, and the American people. Uh, He wanted them to be informed about, this important history and the distortions and lies that have been told by their uh, leaders. Well, there are many things about the Ellsberg history and, um, and his life that fascinate me enough to um, uh, perhaps want to do another book about it. But uh, let me just say that uh, I don't think that there's ever been when one of the things that's so fascinating is I don't think there's ever been a government official with his level of access to power and to classified information. He had been a real government insider, and I'll say more about that later. Uh, no one of his, with his access to that information had broken uh, so radically uh, with the nation's military policies and taken such uh, personal risk in seeking to change those policies. I mean, these charges that he was facing um, added up to a potential 115 years uh, in prison uh, had he been uh, convicted. Uh, I, at the end, I, was, I'll, I will say more about this, but you might as well just tell you now, uh, in case anybody's forgotten, the trial did not come to a conclusion because in its final weeks, uh, the, uh, the judge in that case received word that um, the Watergate investigation had exposed the fact that the Nixon administration had um, ordered uh, a special investigations unit, dubbed the Plumbers, uh, to take illegal actions against Ellsberg, specifically uh, not simply to wiretap him, but to break into the offices of his psychiatrist in hopes that they would find damning information that they could use uh, not only to tarnish him in the press, but perhaps to blackmail him and to keep him from potentially uh, releasing other secret documents, not just about the history of decision-making up to 68, but documents that might expose um, Nixon a Nixon planning uh, and execution of the war. More about that later. Um, I should say that I first met uh, Ellsberg um, some 21 years ago uh, in 1999 when he was 68 years old. Uh, And I was doing so because I was in the process of conducting some 350 interviews with Americans and Vietnamese whose lives were deeply marked by the experience of the Vietnam War. And that culminated in an oral history collection called Patriots. The Vietnam War, remembered from all sides, in which Ellsberg has an account, and I, you know, I vividly remember sitting down with him. At that point, he had an apartment in Washington D.C. where he was doing a lot of his work. You know, at a dining room table stacked with documents, and he was intense uh, uh, as ever, and continued to be uh, very obsessed with his two main interests: the, uh, the Vietnam War, of course, but also. Uh, nuclear weapons which he became involved with uh, way back in the 50s when he started to work for the think tank rand uh, i don't have time today to talk about his involvement in nuclear weapons war planning and then anti-nuclear resistance from the 70s to the present day but it's a crucial part of his life and one that uh fascinates me uh, equally but on that first meeting when i interviewed him one of the things that he said that was most striking to me was, um, was simply this. Uh, the, Pen- the Pentagon Papers, he said, made people understand that presidents lie all the time, not just occasionally, but all the time. Not everything they say is a lie, but anyth- anything they say could be a lie. Now, you know, in that era of the 60s and early 70s, I think you know, many millions of Americans were, were coming to that conclusion, but it was a shocking kind of revelation. And uh, it produced, I think, uh, among many people, um, a, a good and healthy skepticism about uh, the exercise and use of power at the highest levels but it was also accompanied by a fervent desire to hold power accountable for its decisions. Unfortunately, it also, these revelations of public lying, uh, led to, uh, or bred among many Americans, a more negative response in my mind. And that is the sort of, the, the, not the skeptical view, but the cynical view that all politicians lie and nothing can be done about it. So. Uh, which I disagree with. I think we need to continue to hold people accountable. And today we still face that cynicism and and actually something at least, or maybe even more troubling. And that is that uh, the widespread distrust in reality-based evidence of all kinds. Uh, The idea that truth is uh, merely in the eye of the beholder, uh, that you can make up your own reality and your own truth, that no experts in any field can be uh, trusted. You can never rely on journalism, medicine, science, uh, you name it. And the, 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 tr- the, um, the loss uh, of trust has uh, obviously increased in recent years, but I would argue that it has been long uh, eroding, really since uh, Watergate, you could say, but just to take a more recent example, In 2004, just a year after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, one of uh, President George Bush's advisors, Karl Rove, uh, was talking to and ridiculing a journalist uh, who he said was part of the so-called reality-based community. And Karl Rove went on to say, we're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. Now, that, that view, uh, in my mind, is just patently imperious and fundamentally anti-democratic, and it uh, should be uh, challenged and, and not just taken as uh, inevitable. So, you know, I have been in recent months, I have to say, despite the, the, the gloomy uh, life we're living under this pandemic and the economic crisis and other matters, I have been heartened by the upwelling of nonviolent activism in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder, and I, and I support it. But I, th- I also think we need something more if we are going to challenge power and hold it accountable, which Ellsberg of course wanted to do. And that is a reassertion of respect uh, for fact-based research and the importance of verifiable evidence that at least the great majority of people can agree upon, even if the conclusions they draw from that evidence may differ. So I understand that's a pretty old fashioned idea, but I nevertheless think it's uh, particularly essential at this time in our nation's history. So let me say uh, a little bit about um, uh, the the trajectory of Dan uh, Ellsberg's life, because I think among other things, it's one of the most dramatic uh, political conversion stories uh, in our history. Uh, it, sometimes it's reduced to a story of hawk turned dove, and that oversimplifies in some ways, but, but it's, it's basically pretty accurate. Uh, just think about the way his views of the Vietnam War changed. At first he believed it was an absolutely necessary and legitimate war, though a difficult and uh, uh, problematic war. So his idea that, is that he wanted to try to, to, to uh, make the war uh, be fought in a more effective way. So it was for him at first, a problem to be solved. And then in the mid-60s when he spent two years in Vietnam as a State Department consultant trying to find a more effective way to fight the war, he concluded that the war really was an unwinnable stalemate and and, uh, that the United States really should find a way to extract itself from the war, uh, but to do so in a way uh, that would uh, preserve a uh, certain amount of uh, face in American, uh, repu- America's reputation. But then over the course of the next two years from 67 to 69, his view became, grew much more, more radical. And his view of it went from being a problem to be solved, a stalemate to be exited, to a crime, a crime he believed that should be exposed and, uh, and ended, and ended as soon as possible. And it was that final view that led him to the decision to release the Pentagon uh, Papers. What also interests me about the story of Ellsberg is not simply uh, the uh, focus on his own conversion, but to try to connect it to what I regard as a much larger political conversion that involved millions of Americans, not all of course, but certainly millions of, of Americans Uh, went from initially supporting the war um, to turning uh, against it. And more than that, I would argue, and have argued in my most recent book called American Reckoning, uh, that it led to the undermining, uh, quite a profound undermining of what had once been a very broad faith in American exceptionalism. This idea that the United States uh, is uh, at least in foreign affairs is a unique uh, uh, and and invincible force for good in in the in the world, and uh, that got profoundly shaken by the uh, national soul searching and identity crisis brought on by the Vietnam War and other social movements of the time, uh, so that it gave rise to what I would describe as the most diverse and vibrant. Uh, anti-war movement uh, of our history. Uh, I, it would be hard to vivify that quickly, but just I'll uh, use a poll number to give some sense of its extent By, uh, and its power. By 1971, the very year that Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers, a, a poll indicated that 71% of Americans had concluded that the war was a mistake. But even more impressive to me is that same poll showed that 58%, a full majority, had concluded that uh, the American war in Vietnam was immoral. So uh, a little uh, more uh, about Ellsberg's career because in that sort of arc from uh, cold warrior, committed cold warrior to radical dissenter, uh, he um he went to Harvard as an undergraduate and then began graduate school. And in 1954, he did an unusual thing. He had already completed his uh, comprehensive exams for a PhD, not yet the thesis, but the exams. And then uh, uh, briefly turned down an opportunity to spend three years as a Harvard Fellow, where you basically get to do whatever you want to do for three years. And he enlisted in the Marines albeit in the aftermath of Korea, but still a serious uh, step. Uh, One little interesting anecdote he told me in that first interview is that when he was uh, doing a tour in the Mediterranean with the Sixth Fleet, uh, he was on shore leave once in Italy and at a restaurant. And who should he see at another table? But John Wayne, the famous Hollywood uh, actor. And, Ellsberg uh, sends him a bottle of champagne. So much did he respect and revere uh, the man who had made The Sands of Iwo Jima and other war movies that had uh, inspired Ellsberg. And his comment about this, uh, he he got called over to uh, to Wayne's table and they chatted for a while. And Ellsberg's uh, response to this was uh, to me, he said, that was not like meeting a celebrity, that was like meeting Moses. He recruited us all. So again, there's a connection uh, to the larger generational experience of the 50s and the kind of the the quite large buy-in to the legacies of World War II and the trust in the American uh, government, which was pervasive in those years. And then with the experience of Vietnam and other things, including Watergate, completely reversed by the early 70s. I'll just name the numbers of those polls. In the 50s and early 60s, roughly three quarters of Americans trusted the government to do the right thing. And by the early 70s, only a third uh, professed that, con- that level of trust. And that really has stayed the same uh, ever since. Uh, well, after the Marines, uh, he did go back to his academic study, but was consulting with RAND, the Santa Monica, California think tank that had been formed by the Air Force in the late 40s, doing mostly uh, national security reports and top secret uh, investigations, largely of nuclear strategy, which um, Ellsberg worked on a lot. But he began consulting the government, particularly in the early days of the Kennedy administration. And by 1964, uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara uh, hired him to come to the Pentagon where he worked for, uh, a year as one of the so-called whiz kids, these bright young uh, uh, men, and they were all men working in that Pentagon. And just the kind of uh, people you might expect, Robert, Mac- if you know anything about Robert McNamara, you would know that he was, he was attracted to. Uh, someone like Ellsberg uh, with a PhD in economics uh, who had a brilliant analytical mind and could quantify just about every factor and um you know uh would would work 12 hours a day seven seven days a week for that first for that first year well one of the the really fascinating things about that uh, stint in the pentagon is that his first uh his first day of work was august 4th 1964 which is a famous date i'll I'll say why in in a minute uh but uh it it exposed him uh, to uh, so many important things. What what made it famous, of course, was this was the day of the so-called second attack on American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of Vietnam. And uh, Ellsberg is watching the cables, uh, the flash cables. In those days, there was no real uh, real time communication with the place that far flung, but there was a, at least a half an hour delay. And that was the fastest communication you could get, but he was getting one after another of these cables. And at first it seemed very bleak that there was really this major uh, attack of, of small, but, uh, but heavily armed uh, North Vietnamese patrol boats firing torpedo after torpedo at two American destroyers on the high seas. And, um, as uh, he's following, tracking this, uh, a, another message comes in, which is a basically from the from commodore of these two uh, destroyers, a guy named Herrick, basically saying, "Hold, hold the fort, hold the fort." Uh, all of these reports of, of PT attacks uh, may not be true. It may may simply be the effect of freak weather conditions and an overeager sonar man. Uh, you know, request a, a, a delay so so we can investigate what was happening. Uh, but instead, McNamara and LBJ decided to go forward with a retaliatory airstrike on North Vietnam. And that very night, gave, gave LBJ gave a public speech in which he claimed that the evidence of an act of aggression against the United States was unequivocal and that it was unprovoked. And that nonetheless, even though he was going to ask for a congressional resolution, giving him a blank check to escalate the war, He claimed that night as he had before and would again uh, uh, afterward leading up to the 64 election, we still want no wider war. So there on his first day in the Pentagon, Ellsberg was exposed to and understood that the government was telling three fundamental lies. There wasn't unequivocal evidence of an attack on the United States, it was very equivocal. Second, he knew already after one day that uh, if there was an attack, which history uh, did quickly show there had not been a second attack on the fourth, there had been a, a minor ineffective attack on the second with no damage done. Uh, he knew that the United States had provoked it, that in fact the United States had been waging a, a secret small war against North Vietnam since 1961. And even uh, in the Gulf of Tonkin, Those destroyers themselves were engaged in secret intelligence gathering in concert with small South Vietnamese patrol boats, which were attacking targets on the coast of North Vietnam. He also knew that the pledge that that the president wanted no wider war was itself uh, a lie because he, he knew on his first day that all kinds of planning for further escalations had been underway since the previous spring and would continue throughout the fall, even though uh, the president would continue to campaign, claiming time after time that uh, he wasn't gonna send American boys 10,000 miles away to fight a war that should be fought by Vietnamese uh, boys. So um, what did Ellsberg do? Nothing, except to continue to do his job faithfully and loyally and even track down whatever information he could to help justify further escalations of the war. And so Ellsberg concluded by 1971, uh, and for the rest of his life, that his biggest regret uh, was that he didn't in 1964, turn over to the American public the kind of information he got on his first day at work uh, to expose the falsehoods that were being used uh, to promote uh, this war. So I'm going to jump ahead because I don't have too much time left, but to say a bit about his radicalization, why did he finally get to the point where he thought the war was a crime and decide to turn over the papers? A couple of, just two quick things. The first was, part of it was just a a very intense intellectual uh, engagement with the Pentagon papers themselves, which he had actually helped. He was part of a team of some 34 people that McNamara had commissioned to put together this study. Uh, So he had uh, access to the full 7,000 pages of documents and, but he was probably one of only about three people who actually read them, every one of them, intensely and studied them. And he was really shocked that going all the way back to the 40s, one president after another, Democrat and Republican alike, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, had all told major lies about the nature of the war, that we hadn't been anti-colonial, that we had supported the French reconquest and colonial uh, war in Vietnam, that we hadn't been on the side of democracy, that we had sabotaged, planned for elections in 1956 that undoubtedly would have re- elected Ho Chi Minh to, uh, take a, a, to uh, govern all of a reunited Vietnam, that JFK had given the green light to overthrow Xi'an, that LBJ had planned escalations even while running as a peace candidate, all these things and many more. But there was one other uh, brief uh, story that's worth telling. In 69, he attended a conference of the War Resisters League, and heard a young American draft resister named Randy Keeler explain to the audience, including Ellsberg, why he had decided to confront the government directly and to face the consequences, which he did. He spent two years in prison for resisting the draft, as did thousands of other Americans. And Ellsberg, at that point, was starting to meet a whole different kind of cast of characters, not government uh, officials, not Rand analysts, but you know, devout uh, Gandhians and anti-war activists. And when he heard um, Keeler's story, he, he left the room and went to the men's room and says he literally sobbed for an hour. So distressed was he that the, we were leaving to the young people to fight and resist the war. And he, at that point, you know, in his late 30s, what was he gonna do? What would he be willing to do to try to resist the war if he were willing to accept prison the way that Keeler was. And that was really the decisive moment in leading him to decide to turn over uh, these papers, uh, which he first tried to do um, by giving them to anti-war senators and Congress people, thinking that these people could put the, um, put the uh, Pentagon papers into the public record. Uh, and that that would be the best uh, w- way to get the papers out. But even people like McGovern and Fulbright refused to do it for their own political reasons, and that's all story, but basically because they, they didn't want to be tainted with um, the criticism that might come for making public classified uh, documents. Now Nixon of course goes after him and that too is a fascinating history and maybe some of you will wanna ask about that. At first he wasn't sure that it was such a big deal because after all the Pentagon papers only went up to 1968. So it didn't really, it wasn't really about Nixon. And in fact, it made his democratic predecessors look pretty bad. But his national security advisor Kissinger said, whoa, Ellsberg might actually have papers about us that he will release. He didn't actually, but he knew a lot. And uh, Kissinger said, listen, Mr. President, Daniel Ellsbrick is quote, the most dangerous man in America. He must be stopped at all costs. Nixon quickly got the message and that's when they went about not just the trial, but something much uh, more pernicious, the establishment of the plumbers to take illegal uh, actions uh, against them. And this leads me to the, the conclusion which is just to briefly say something about the significance of uh, Ellsberg's release of the Pentagon Papers. And part, of course, it did confirm for many Americans that the war was not just a mistake, but fundamentally wrong and based on lies. But what is not as well known is that it actually provoked this Nixon overreaction, which led directly to Watergate. It should be considered one of the first crimes of Watergate and perhaps more important than the break-in of Watergate and Democratic headquarters. Because after all, to this day, Nixon has not yet been directly connected to the ordering of that break-in of the Watergate. Of course, he was connected to the paying of hush money to try to cover it up. So that itself might have brought him down. But um, the hush money itself, by the way, was paid to the plumbers, first and foremost, to keep them from saying anything about the crime that Nixon was directly connected to. And on the record of ordering, which is uh, having the plumbers do anything to get, illegal or legal to get Daniel Ellsberg. So in some sense, the whole Ellsberg story leads directly to the downfall of Nixon, which is uh, really important because it does, uh, the resignation, the forced resignation of Nixon really does effectively end the war. You could say, yes, it ended with the Paris Peace Accords, but Those accords quickly unraveled and Nixon was thinking seriously about renewing the bombing of Vietnam, but so discredited was he by Watergate that by uh, summer of 73 Congress voted to cut off all funds for ongoing bombing in Indochina, so it did effectively bring an end to the war. So I'll close just by um, ending on the kind of, uh, what was then might be considered a kind of happy ending, which are the final words of Ellsberg's own memoir, worth reading, a book called Secrets, where he says, with Nixon's resignation, we came back to being a democratic republic, not an elected monarchy, a government under law, the Congress, the courts, and the press functioning to curtail executive abuses as our constitution envisioned. Moreover, for the first time in this or any other country, the legislature was casting its whole vote against an ongoing presidential war. Congress was stopping the bombing and the war was going to end. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Professor. What a fascinating window what you've just said gives us into the Vietnam War. So this prompts a number of questions, as you might imagine, from parishioners. One of them is that one could argue, and many have argued, as you well know, that the United States won the war militarily, which you would expect of the superpower that we are and were, but we lost it politically because we didn't understand the history, the culture, the language, uh, of Vietnam. Would you agree with that? And would you elaborate on that? How was it possible yeah, I that think the that best and brightest it, did this?
0: I think that puts it well. When I talk to people um, who who make the claim that we, we we did or certainly could have won the war militarily, I agree with part of that answer and say, yes, a, a major military power like ours, if it chose to, could probably still be in Vietnam. And, and, and uh, holding something we would call uh, South Vietnam. But military dominance is not the same thing as political legitimacy. And although we might have maintained a of form of political occupation, that doesn't mean that we would ever have achieved the stated objective, which was, of course, to um, help build and bolster a government in South Vietnam that had the broad support of its own people and and thus Could stand on its own without an ongoing and massive American occupation. So, in that sense, yes, the war was all about um, politics. And the truth is, while uh, I have, and one could uh, make a very strong case uh, against the communist victors in Vietnam, um, they succeeded in gaining uh, much more fervent uh, support. uh, in the South, as well as the North. And that's one of the things that actually Ellsberg began to realize early on when he, when he arrived in Vietnam in 1965 that the, 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 the government of South Vietnam just did not have broad support and that the South Vietnamese military uh, did not fight with
1: nearly the fervency or effectiveness uh, of, their, uh, of their opponents. You mentioned this in passing, but the degree, to, and of course, you wrote a whole book about it. Working class war. Can you comment on the the fact that the war really was fought by the working class, and now, of course, we have an all volunteer army, and how different that was from Korea and World War II and all the wars I think in American history that preceded it.
0: Well, the uh, in the late forties, we did create the first permanent peacetime draft system, and even at the time of Korea, it was class biased in every possible way. Giving advantage to the the, the wealthier and the, uh, the the better connected, um, and that was certainly true in uh, Vietnam, where there are all kinds of deferments and exemptions that uh, college and graduate school students could gain, and even ones that you would think wouldn't wouldn't necessarily advantage the well connected, like physical exemptions worked differently from how you might expect. Um, you would think that uh, the more disadvantaged Americans uh, would have poor health and, and more physical uh, f- problems that would keep them from military service. But in practice, the way that the induction physicals worked is that as quotas, draft quotas went up, it became kind of just a rubber stamping of one person after another who didn't have, lacked a very key document, a, personal, a letter from a personal doctor testifying to a history of high blood pressure or chronic asthma or any number of other things that could, or let bone spurs to use a uh, more a, a current example. Um, that worked. In fact, at some uh, induction centers, they would just say, okay, who's got a letter from your doctor? You line up over here, everybody else go over here. Um, so yeah, it, was a, it really was um, a working class war. And they they did try to reform it a bit with the lottery, but by then it was sort of too late. There were still student deferments until 71. And the all-volunteer force, I have to say, although they've uh, offered a lot of more inducements, monetary and otherwise, to try to build a a volunteer force, I would still say, it has continued to be a class skewed uh, military. And it, it often is a form of what I would call economic conscription. Not a draft, but the, the economic
1: pressures are often foremost. Just briefly, could you talk a little bit about, about Bob McNamara? We were talking about him before we began and you said as early as 1960. Five, six, five, 65, six or at the latest, yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and could you include, talk a little bit about that? And yeah, the thing the about McNamara that
0: uh, is, is fascinating, but also galling is that he, um, although he, um, he did in early 65, 65 strongly encourage Johnson to introduce the first full official combat units into Vietnam and to initiate the systematic bombing of North as well as South Vietnam, he privately very quickly developed doubts that the war could be, um, achieve its objectives militarily but he kept those to himself and continued for the next couple of years to strongly advocate uh, escalation. One brief anecdote actually that uh, Ellsberg tells, which is so telling. In 1966, McNamara went on his, one of his many short fact-finding uh, missions to South Vietnam. And on the plane going back, he was, got into a debate with some staff members and called Ellsberg to the back of the plane to join in. And he said, to, uh, he said to Dan, Dan, I've just been talking to Comer here, who's telling us that we're making progress in Vietnam. But my opinion, things are worse this year than they were last year. What do you think? And Ellsberg said, well, I'm actually impressed by how things have stayed the same. We've made no progress. And McNamara says, you've proven my point. We've added another 150,000 troops and things are still the same. That means they're worse. So the plane lands in D.C., he goes out on the tarmac in front of a bank of microphones, and he says, gentlemen, I'm just back from Vietnam, and I'm happy to announce that we're making progress in every, every every form of progress imaginable in Vietnam. Things are much better this year than they were last year. So saying, obviously, the complete opposite
1: in public of what he was saying in private. Right. Can you comment on relations between the United States and Vietnam today and does the evolution of that relationship, is it surprising to you given the the war?
0: You know, it's surprising not just given uh, the war, but the 20 years of embargoes and sort of diplomatic hostility that followed uh, the war, um, principally on the American side, who until uh, relations were normalized under Clinton... Uh, the government had always held over Vietnam, this impossible demand. Either we can never um, reestablish diplomatic relations unless and until you provide a quote, full accounting of every one of America's missing in action. You know, and that of course has never happened in any war. I mean, we still have 70,000 missing in action from World War II and 7,000 from Korea. And so the the 2000 in Vietnam was re- actually relatively small, uh, and, uh, and at least half of them had um, were were designated missing in action, body not recovered. No, killed in action, body not recovered. There was there was visual evidence that they were almost certainly killed, uh, but um, they couldn't recover the body. So we're talking about you know, a relative compared to other wars, a relatively small amount. And these are people who tended to be killed either in over the ocean or very thick thick uh terrain uh in vietnam so it was an impossible demand and by the way vietnam had uh, 300,000 of its own mis- missing in action that it was concerned about recovering um so um, finally and and for and i happily uh relations have been very good actually since the mid-90s and you know it's well it's worth mentioning that um uh, veterans actually a lot of uh, a group of veterans who were in the press sort of thought to be opposed to normalizing relations actually a core of somewhat more progressive anti-war veterans pushed for normalized relations uh, with uh, interestingly enough a lot of corporate support corporations were very eager to do business in vietnam they if you go back and read the business press in the mid 70s they referred to vietnam as the new asian tiger to be you know profited from and now we do billions. I, that last time I looked, something like fifty billion dollars of business with Vietnam. Um, so yeah, relations are strong, and they they do um, they are concerned about China. Relationships with China, which is their great historic enemy. Uh, remember that Vietnam was dominated by China for um, more than a thousand years. You know, way back two millennia. Is one, one of the reasons why st- students of Vietnam would, would, were skeptical of this claim made often in the 60s, particularly the early 60s, that North Vietnam was a pawn of China. Now, yes, they did get substantial support, but it was always a kind of wary relationship because they didn't, they didn't want China to step back in at any point and dominate.
1: And they, Professor, they, they, go ahead. Please, please go ahead. No, no, that's fine. We have limited time. That's enough, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. What a fascinating discussion of a war that continues to loom large uh, in American uh, culture and memory today. Thank you so much, Professor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for attending. And everyone, please join us next Sunday when our speaker will be Professor Elaine Pagels, a professor of religion at Prince University, and the title of her talk will focus on her book, Why Religion? Thank you very much.